So hi, I'm John. And I'm Joe. Welcome to our podcast, Extraordinariness. Where we explore the motivations behind ordinary people's extraordinary accomplishments. So this week for your interview, Joe, you've gone nautical with an ocean rowing adventure. I am going to let him introduce himself. My name's Nick Dennison, and um, I'm a consultant anaesthetist, and um, I work in Surrey. I'm a lieutenant colonel in the army, and uh, I spend most of my time working in, in a local hospital, uh, anaesthetising people for um, either routine or uh, emergency surgery. And my um, extraordinary achievement is about 11 years ago, I, um, with a teammate of mine, set the world record for becoming the first pair to row around Great Britain in a pairs class rowing boat, which was a solo, um, unsupported event and challenge. Pretty impressive. So I wanted to find out more about how they came up with the idea and more importantly, how they got this extraordinary event up and running. So the process which led us to really kind of undertake this challenge was I was part, part of a scheme a year or two before to um, take, part, take part in a race to row across the Atlantic. Now this was with a different group of lads, but this, this project kind of morphed into um, projects of row around Great Britain. So various people dropped out, money was a big problem. Um, various people changing jobs, I was in the process of joining the army. And so um, with further research, we've, we found out that this, this, achieve, this, um, this challenge of, of a complete circumnavigation of Great Britain in a pairs class rainbow hadn't been done before. So um, we decided it was a perfect opportunity. If you're going to undertake a world record, well, the best way of doing it is to um, pick one that no one's ever done before. So uh, almost by default, you get a world record. I really wanted to get to the bottom of the motivation behind the event. So I asked Nick if gaining the world record was the main goal. The goal really was to do something which which was going to really test ourselves. I think we, we were both from a similar sort of mindset. Myself and my Hamish, my, 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 my teammate was called Hamish. Um, <laughs> We met, we met when we joined the army, so we met in basic training. We joined the army to do phase one training, so that's literally the first, the first you know, four to 12 weeks of training. So I met Hamish, and we were cut from a very similar cloth. He was, he, was a, he was a doctor in the process of joining the army. I was in the same, we went on a doctor's course going through basic training. And um, he'd, done some, he'd done some fun things in the past. He'd, he'd completed a, 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 um, a swim of, of the channel, and also attempted, quite crazily, the world's. Uh, he attempted the world record crawling, um, <laughs> uh, crawling challenge, which actually turns out is pretty hard. Uh, <laughs> it's not a pretty good show by the sound of things. And I've seen the video; he's pretty, just pretty ill afterwards. Um, so the, yeah, the main motivation for doing it was, I suppose, being in the right place and um, meeting the right people. And then the, the project kind of adapted. It became, it became this this attempt to row around Great Britain. It turned out no one had done it before in a pairs class rowing boat. And at the same time, when we were planning this project, it, it was an extraordinary opportunity to raise money for, ch- for charity. And the charities we chose were around uh, some, some military charities. And this was at the time of, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan was, was still quite, quite active. And so we were having injured servicemen. So it was a way of raising money to support injured servicemen. Um, achieving something fantastic and also to sort of really kind of test ourselves and to feel a sense of achievement. So it definitely wasn't simply the accolade that inspired the challenge. These guys relished the opportunity to push themselves, but in the process, raise money and awareness for charities that they felt passionate about. It got me thinking about Nick 
and Hamish and their decision to join the army, that particular career choice and if that influenced the challenge in any way. I, I dabbled around post-med school with the, the reserve um, forces uh, and being, being a junior doctor is busy and being, being a, um, especially a first, a first year junior doctor, there's, you know, it's the first time you're working in the medical profession and um, I, I, I kind of figured either I was going to just stay with hospital-based medicine and just continue that way or I was going to move straight into the army and I, and I thought for me it was going to be a bit of a struggle to, to just do both and effectively had two jobs. I say that now, I, it still feels like I've effectively got two jobs because I do work in a in hospital, in secondary healthcare. Um, but it was it just seemed like an easier easier way forward to join the, the regular um, the regular army, and that's what I did. So, what did it influence my um, did joining the army? Did it um, influence my challenge? Well, um, I think it gave me the opportunity to meet like minded people. Um, to meet incredibly capable people who, who will think about a project and it, it may sound crazy and far-fetched, but um, if you're amongst like-minded people who love the idea of a, a sporting challenge or um, pushing themselves or reaching a personal goal, then within the army you find a huge number of people like that. Um, so I think it probably threw me into an environment where um, there were opportunities. So, with the army, yes, there are opportunities which you can seize, but also within the army, if you come up with a, a project or a venture or an innovation, um, if you then present that to your to your chain of command and it's and it's a plausible and an achievable task, um, and the army loves support as well, then it's going to get supported. And so, uh, I was very very lucky to have the army support me to do that, and by by that, you know, they they paid me a wage whilst I was doing this expedition. Um, and they supported us to do that, and they, they sponsored the expedition as well. Um, we still had to, we still largely funded, we funded the boat ourselves, um, and it's it's not it's not a small expedition, you know, to, to buy buy a boat and to fully kit it out costs cost a few quid. But without the army support, you know, we, we almost certainly wouldn't have been able to do to do the project. And um, you know, it was it was it was sort of it was funny because once you get on the you know, there was there was a little bit of reluctancy within within the army to to support it, but once it was very clear this project was happening, you know, the army has sort of media and comms type departments, and you know, it was it was very much it, it was quite funny looking back. You know, we we sort of for a short period of time became poster boys, and uh, that kind of tickled us a little bit. The army wasn't just the police where Nick and Hamish met. It provided an environment that not only attracted like-minded individuals with similar appetites for adventure but also offered support, financial and otherwise, without which the challenge may never have happened. So for the British Army to put his name to the event by way of sponsorship and providing a platform for the guys to promote themselves and the charitable causes that they were supporting, you'd assume both were relatively strong on the rowing front, wouldn't you? Well, my previous rowing experience, I was never never a... uh, a national level rower, a GB rower. Um, I learned to row in Sheffield. Uh, Sheffield was a great place to be a student and it was a good place to do sport. But it was, it's a sort of, it, it was, the sport was chronically un, underfunded really. But we had this fantastic um, venue. We had this big, big venue called Danflask Reservoir. So I, I competed on a kind of, on a regional level within, 
within these sort of further Midlands and the north of England up to, up to York and across uh, across the east. And uh, I had a lot of fundraising. We didn't uh, seem to remember, we never seemed to really win very much. I've got two two trophies from a novice a novice uh, novice race, but um, no, it was something which I really enjoyed doing, and it was a great way of meeting people, training, and you know, we, we trained hard. We trained. I think at one point, I think I was I worked out I was doing more hours rowing training, even though we never seemed to achieve very much. I seemed to do more hours rowing training than I was actually doing at med school. Um, perhaps. <laughs> I feel, I feel that was hours well spent. Some rowing at uni, no notable successes, so this wasn't going to be easy by any stretch. As a team of two, I wanted to find out more about Nick's rowing partner, Hamish, and how they worked together towards the challenge. So I met Hamish uh, in 2010 when I, when I joined the army. We spent quite an intense period together. When, you, when you're thrown into the army, basic training is it's an intense period of time. You don't get very much sleep. You're, you're running around in the woods with face paint on, um, and as a junior doctor, you're, you're, you're given weapon systems and you think, goodness me, why on earth have I got this thing? Um, and so uh, we were both going through the, the, the same experience together and it was, it was a lot of fun. It was quite stressful, um, but it was, it was a lot of fun. So we, we met each other and uh, he, he'd not, not long finished um, his, his, uh, his, channel, his channel swim and still, still buzzing about the, um, the challenge of that. And he, he, um, he heard about our our rowing project, which was to row, around, um, row the Atlantic at the time. And in fact, that was starting to, it was, the wheels were starting to come off a little bit. Um, so anyway, he, he kind of expressed an interest and we started chatting about it. And then uh, one plan became another plan and um, the Great Britain Challenge, um, which we called Expedition Row Britannia at the time, uh, came about and the plan was hatched. There's a clear evolution when it comes to this event. What started as one thing evolved into something quite different but what's quite clear to me at this point is the the coming together of the team the like-mindedness of, of Nick and Hamish. It was back bringing different skills to the party so Hamish, Hamish's, Hamish's dad had always had a small boat so he had a, a small boat which was a beautiful little Halberg Rassi 33 which kept in Limington Yacht Haven and um, what I didn't have was I didn't have much experience of coastal sailing and in fact sailing in general so I needed to learn how to handle boat at sea, how to, how to navigate, how to, you know, to, under, to understand the sea, to, to be comfortable in, in the waves. And yes, I've done a bit, you know, a bit of sailing on holiday, but this was, this is a much bigger challenge. This is some, some big, some big water crossings. There are some, you know, big seas out there. And uh, as it happened during, during our, our circumnavigation of Great Britain, we did end up 80 miles offshore. So, you know, you're in, in a lot of water. So we, I, you know, I spent, I knew, I knew that was something I needed to work on, so I spent a lot of time learning how to sail, but it was more about being on the sea, navigation, boat handling, you know, the ways of the water, you know, which way do you pass craft, what your light's got to be on the boat. So we did various different qualifications, um, yacht master quali- qualifications, I think, coast, coastal skipper, um, so that we were, we were safe at sea and we could handle the boat. So Hamish came with the experience of kind of boat handling, and I came with the experience of rowing, so... I think Amy had sat on rowing machines before and you know, potted around in small kind of coastal, coastal rowing boats, but he'd never been on a on a sliding seat rowing in a sliding seat boat. So it was it was it was me really kind of training Hamish to, to row really. And because we were a team, you know, we we um, yeah we brought different things to the party and uh, and um, 
that was great. That was, that was one thing I think made us a really strong team. Nick and Hamish seemed to both complement each other's skill sets. What Nick lacked in sailing knowledge, he made up for with his rowing background and vice versa. But still, two amateurs taking on a huge challenge. It took 50 days. Um, it took 50 days at sea. So we left uh, Limington Yacht Haven just next to the Isle of Wight, if you don't know the, um, that part of Dorset so well. So we pushed off from, uh, from the Yacht Haven and headed west. So we had headed in the direction of Land's End. And we had planned to get down there in about three or four days. Um, but yeah, in the end, it took 50 days to get all the way around. Everything took longer than we expected. Um, it turned out it was an incredibly hard challenge to do. I feel like I could have told them that. So now I'm thinking 50 days at sea on their own. How did they pack for that? What did they need and how did they get their supplies? It's one thing training for the rowing, the physical part, but I couldn't get my head around all the other stuff, food, drink, and we all want to know. How do they go to the toilet? We wanted to be self-sufficient. We didn't, we didn't want to be resupplied. Um, and so we had to carry all our food with us and the means to make our own water. So we had a, a clever device called um, a desalinator on board. And so that was electrical, electrically powered. So we had solar cells and batteries. And we'd run this machine, which would then produce our own pure water. So uh, we, we didn't have to didn't take on supplies. We didn't take on, on water during that whole time. Um, we just about had enough food to get around. Maybe a bit early for the nitty gritty. Coming back to the day-to-day, I was interested in how they worked together on the rowing. Was it one on, one off, both together? I had no idea how this sort of thing worked. So the, the way it worked with rowing was um, we wanted to keep the boat moving for as long as possible. So we sat down and worked out whether, it's, whether we get more mileage under our belt from rowing together or rowing um, just one up. And it, it, what we worked out is it, it depended. So it depends on the tides. And the thing about the UK coastline is that there are some extraordinarily strong tides around the UK coastline. And, um, and there are some certain points, some certain pinch points where the water is really funneled around and the water really races past at 10 knots you know, during, during springs, which is part of the lunar cycle. Um, so what we worked out was sometimes it was going to be beneficial to row together. And if, if there was a strong spring tide, we might row together. If other times, if, if we were in an area where it wasn't particularly tidal, we were better off keeping the boat moving 24 hours a day. Um, and so we'd row two hours on, two hours off, 24 hours a day, um, which was tough. So we'd, we'd probably spend 12 hours, those days we'd spend, you know, close to 12 hours on the oars each day. Other days, if we are in an area which is highly tidal, we'd, we'd make the most of, of what's called the, um, the slack tide, so the, the tide around um, just, bef- just before it turns. So when the tide's not doing so much, and the fair tide is the, the tide in, your, in the direction you want to go. So we make the most of slack and fair. And then when it starts to turn slack again, and then the tide starts to turn foul, so it's going the wrong way, that's when we'd, uh, if we started going backwards, as if, if we lose, it's if our bow speed dropped to less than a knot, um, then that was the point where we both rest. So we'd, uh, we'd put, if, we were, if it was shallow enough, we'd put the anchor down just to try and, um, just to try and not lose any, Near the ground we'd made and then you usually get about four or five hours worth of strong foul tide before it starts turning slack again and you can start making headway so is that a mixture of we had we had to work as we we, we were we had to work as a strong team um and we had to we had to get on and we had to get on the oars 
you know, two hours on, two hours off, or whatever the tide cycle was, and, and make our mileage. Um, so I needed him, and uh, I needed him to perform, and he needed me to to, to pull and to perform, and, um, and that's what we did. Brutal. I mean, I can't contemplate how tough it would be to work on that sort of trajectory over such an extended length of time. Completing something like this would feel incredible, but the actual participation, the completing of it, it must have been rough. So let's get into the pit and peaks. We ask all our guests about the highs and the lows of their extraordinary challenges. In terms of highlights and low points, I think one of the hardest bits is adjusting your expectations. So um, we set, uh, we, we estimated, so we ended up leaving Limington to take a step backwards. Um, we left early in the, in the end because we were waiting for a weather window and there'd been some wonderful weather, which we just weren't ready for because it was, it was right at the beginning of our weather window and we still weren't completely prepped. So in the end, I think we left about five or six days before our estimated departure date to try and make the, the most of this weather window. And it turned out we just weren't far enough. You know, we, we perhaps, if, if we could have left a week earlier, that would have been absolutely amazing, but we just, you know, it was just too early for us. Um, so our expectation was to get to Land's End in about three or four days because this wonderful weather system, I can still remember it, I could see it on, I could see it on all the weather charts. They're just going to blow us all the way down to Land's End. So we were rubbing our hands with glee at the sight of this weather system, thinking, you know, we'll literally just, we'll just be just cruising, just tapping the oars down, just get us down to Land's End. Uh, and then what happened was we, we did about two days. We got towards um, kind of Pool Harbour area. And then the wind, the wind changed. And, you know, it wasn't blowing, wasn't blowing a hooey, but it was, it was blowing 10, 15 knots from the southwest, which was just on our nose. And it just meant every mile was a complete grind. So uh, what we thought was going to take three, three and a half days, four days to get down to Land's End took 10. And that, that was a real struggle with expectations because we were so early into the, we were so early into the challenge that we were spending all this time on one stage um, and uh, we, we just didn't, if we were going to take that long to get to Land's End, well, how long was it going to take us to get to the north of Scotland, to get back down the North Sea and to, um, you know, to round Dover and to get home? Um, so that was, that was a low point. Ouch. I wasn't expecting that. To have hit the low that early could have gone either way, pack it in, or surely the only way is up. But then, you know, we had these phenomenal high points, so we'd, we got to, got down to Land's End, and we found we found out, and it was a bit of a learning. It was a real learning experience, in that we found out that when the tide's going away from you, sometimes if you just tuck in really close to the shore, you can get what's called a, an inshore eddy. So even the, the tide's a couple of hundred meters out, it's going the wrong way. If you really tuck in close to the shore, so close that you're almost rock dodging, that there's almost the tide going the wrong way. Um, so we often made good headway by by just kind of being able to read the conditions better and just making most of real local conditions. Um, but we ran, rounded Land's End and, and um, the weather just completely changed and we had this sort of mill pond crossing of the Irish Sea where all we had coming in from the, from the Atlantic Ocean was this really kind of light ocean swell, which was a long kind of wavelength, just kind of rising up and dropping away. And... It was just absolutely perfect rowing conditions. It was nice warm temperatures, completely flat sea. We just whizzed across the Irish Sea. Um, and, you know, then we were making good headway. We were, you know, getting some good mileage each day. 
And when you're getting mileage in, when you're you know, doing a distance challenge, you're getting mileage in, you know, your spirits are up. Um, and it, was, it was a crazy time of really highs and really lows. And, you know, you suddenly be getting the miles in. And then we got across to, got across to Ireland and the weather changed again. If you're in a, you know, you're in a rowing boat, the, the rowing boat weighs about a tonne. Um, and so you're shifting this enormous, enormous boat. It's 23 feet long, um, carrying all your food. And suddenly, if the wind turns to 15 knots on the nose, you're just, you're just not going to make much headway. So uh, we were just outside Wexford Harbour in, in, in Ireland, and we weren't, going, we weren't going anywhere. And the wind was forecast for five days to be against us. So all we could do was put the anchor down, was sit there for about four or five days, and just start, just continue eating our rations. I'm starting to get a real sense of the nature of this type of event. It's a roller coaster, but it didn't deter the boys from completing. So I asked Nick what kept him going. I think, I think the risk for me, the, the worry about failure is strong. And, you know, sometimes that's out of my control. If, you know, the weather's, the weather's going to blow, that was our weather window. And... I think sometimes you just have to acknowledge that circumstances, the weather, it's just going to happen for a period of time and then it's, it's going to get better. But for that moment in time, you are going to be in, in a rough place. But I think it takes, you've got to adjust, adjust your expectations and I think you've, you've got to, you've got to realise that you are, to a certain extent, a passenger and at the mercy of the weather. Um, but then the weather's going to change and, and, uh, you're going to be able to make headway. And maybe that's a philosophy for life you can, you can take on. I think it's a bit tricky to do something like this and not get a bit philosophical. But I'll tell you what, the next story you're really going to want to listen to. I'll tell you about another, another, another particularly, uh, not necessarily a low point, but just a pretty stressful point, was capsizing in the North Sea. So um, we had this... Extraordinary experience, quite quite frightening experience in the North Sea. So we came round um, John O'Groats. We went through Stroma Sound. Um, we headed down to, towards Aberdeen, uh, and we're heading out into the North Sea because it looked like there was going to be some really nice, some really nice, some winds blowing from the north. And um, so we, we pushed out into the North Sea, and actually we pushed quite a long way out, and it was probably too far, but. We would be, we'd been 30 days at sea and we thought, we just want to get home now. It's like the final stretch. We just need to head south. And this wind just built and built and built from the north. And uh, we had this almost, um, this sort of experience of surfing waves. So the, the, the wind, you know, when it was still, still manageable, the wind built up and the way everything was going the right direction. We, we were sitting on a, a one-ton rowing boat, surfing it down the waves. 80 miles out in the North Sea, which sounds completely mad, but we were having an absolute whale of the time because we were, we, were, we were ripping in the miles. We were just getting a huge amount of miles done each day. Um, and we were just, you know, on the edge of our seats thinking, I just hope this doesn't get any stronger. And it did get stronger. It got stronger and stronger and stronger, to which point, at which point the boat was, it was just, it was unmanageable. We couldn't steer it. Uh, we couldn't keep it pointing in a, in a safe um, direction. And um, the wind across the hull would, would blow it in such a way that it wouldn't lie in a straight direction downwind. It would, row, it would lie off to one side, which meant that as waves came, they would broadside you. So this was when we capsized. So we, we got broadsided by a bunch of waves. And um, we, uh, we flipped, I think we went all the way over about twice in the North Sea. 
it wasn't an open rowing boat. It was um, it did have a small cabin on the rear, uh, so we that's where we slept and that's where we yeah we got our rest. Uh, so actually, when I went over, I hadn't long just um, don't want to go into too much detail. I hadn't long finished on the toilet. I had a little bit of stomach trouble, so I'd been out on deck um, using the bucket. And uh, just as I put myself back in the cabin, because at, this, at which point it was too rough to row, we couldn't we couldn't make any headway. So we had a safety device at the back of the boat, which is called a, a sea a sea drogue, or it was a or under small underwater parachute, which just controlled the direction of the boat. We got back into the cabin, and we just got broadsided by some waves, and we we went over. We probably took maybe a gallon or two of water into the cabin. Um, but the biggest loss was uh, on deck we had three or four items which were indispensable. So the first of which was the only bottle of chilli sauce on the boat. The, uh, the second of which was uh, one of only two spoons on the boat. And so from this point onwards, we were now sharing a spoon. Um, the third of which was the only bottle of shower gel. The only, there was no other soap, that was it. And then uh, the fourth of which was... Um, there was a small bottle of whiskey which is on deck as well so we'd made a as you know good explorers smoke pipes and uh drink whiskey we we'd taken a small bottle of whiskey with us and that had gone as well so somewhere lying at the bottom of the north sea is um is a small bottle of whiskey a fork a small bottle of shower gel and um a small bottle of encona hot chili sauce i wouldn't be able to take on the north sea like that but in these kind of situations these guys are on their own so how do you call for help I think it was a it was a it was a frightening moment. So I'll make light of it. But at the time, we we weren't quite sure. We we had never been tested in this way. We'd never we'd never capsized. We knew it was a, a self righting boat. Um, we we didn't know how much of a pickle we were in. So I ended up phoning one of our advisors. On we had a satellite phone with us. So he was actually in. He was a brigadier. He was on a on a on a liaison job in Washington D.C. So I, I can still remember this phone call at five o'clock in the morning. So for him, it must have been in the middle of the night. So I said to him, um, I said, Andy, uh, we're in a bit of a fix right now. We've just capsized. He goes, um, oh, right, okay. Are you injured? I said, no, we're not injured. He said, um, is your boat all right? I said, yeah, the boat's fine. He goes, well, you're absolutely fine. What are you calling me for? <laughs> so uh, that was a good, that was a good little, I think that's what we, need, we needed to hear at the time. Stomach problems, waves big enough to flip the boat over, supplies gone. I mean, is this the point where they thought, we might not do this? But I think once we got towards, once we got towards, um, uh, you know, Kent, Dover, Margate, you know, we were thinking we're, you know, we're home and dry now. We can, we've got five, six days we can get home. This should be fine. Uh, But yeah, the the fear of not finishing and the fear of failure where you've invested so much time, you've told, your expectations are high, you've built built up, you know, you've told a lot of people what you're going to do, You've got loads of people following what you're doing. And it's it's stressful. The fear of failure is is I think it's strong for everyone. Nick talks about the fear of failure a lot during our conversation. And I guess what we're trying to establish through all our interviews on this podcast is the different attributes that make people do these ex- extraordinary things, the the recipe for extraordinariness. So I asked Nick what his thoughts were on this. I think a couple of characteristics that both Hamish and I had are we both we're both highly highly aspirational and we really just love the idea of a challenge. And and the great thing about challenges is you don't know whether you can do it. And um, 
So you look at a project, you look at a challenge, be it, is it, is it even possible to, to row around Great Britain continuously? And, um, you know, I don't know whether people historically have done it. There's certainly no other record of um, small, small crews do it. So I think the idea of doing something which you don't know is achievable. And I think at the time, we, we, uh, we, we've done a bit of reading. And I, and I, th- and I think at the time, you know, fewer people have actually... I think a four had rode around Great Britain, which was, they did it in uh, about 27, 29 days. But this, this really was the first pair. So whether you don't, you just don't know whether you can haul enough food, whether, you, you know, you're going to get held down by weather windows. So I guess that just, just makes it incredibly exciting that you're, that you're the first to do it. And I can make comparisons to, to some of the, um, the, the Arctic explorers or some of the mountain, mountaineers of the sort of early 20th century. Um, when you know some of the, um, be it uh, Bonington, um, Hillary, uh, Tenzing Norgate, these guys are climbing climbing mountains, and they just don't know whether their physiology, with their bodies, can do it, whether humans can do it, and um, and it's incredibly inspiring. So they're both massively aspirational, relish a challenge, like to push themselves, but it also seems that element of the unknown was was really. A motivating factor they simply didn't know if it was possible because it had never been done before so psychologically how do you approach this sort of event you, you not- look at the project not necessarily as an over as a one big project but you look at the different different the different components which make up that project be it um navigation having the right equipment the boat the food you know if you're walking to the south pole making sure you've got the right skis and the right sled with you. Um, so you, it's sort of, it's troubleshooting each of these areas, which um, which uh, all have their, their individual challenges and seeing if you can overcome them. And it, it pulls together in, into an enormous project. This is really interesting because so far we've only really spoke about the challenge itself and the build-up to the event. But what I'm really interested in finding out next is the kind of legacy an event like this leaves, the skills that you've learned along the way and how that impacts your life moving forward. Bizarrely, it's something which is, is, is certainly been one of my greatest successes, but probably actually facilitated me um, landing the job I'm in at the moment. It's certainly the, the training training to become a consultant and atheist. It was something which was extraordinary, which went on my application form. And, um, you know, I'd say in, in all... In all different categories of my life you know have I published loads of stuff within medicine um a little bit not a huge amount have I you know am I tremendously academic um I'm a little bit academic but not massively um but then on my CV suddenly suddenly an interviewer's eyes seem to be cast down to this line of which might simply be uh expedition Royal Britannia world record attempt to row around Great Britain and um, suddenly, no one's no one's interested in in whether I've written a small article in the Royal College of Anesthetists newsletter. They're much more interested in hearing about some extraordinary plan. So um, it's certainly been something. Even though I did it eleven years ago, I think it's I think it's defined probably defined a lot of my life. Wow, what an amazing story. And I think that there's a couple of bits in that that I was listening to thinking, 
I would find that really hard. The, the part where they said that they were in the North Sea, stuck outside, I think it was, was it Wexford Harbour? And uh, they had to anchor and just sit there for five days. That kind of non-progress. How demoralising. That would just be brutal. Yeah, you know? It's really not like, I think maybe if you stop, when they were talking about stopping in the tides earlier for four or five hours, I thought, well, that's probably quite nice, you know, have a rest, rest your muscles. But then after you've stopped for a day, that's just demoralising, you know. I, th- I think I would really have struggled with that. That's a nasty, oh, and the chilli sauce. I mean, I wrote that down. I can't stop thinking about that. And the bottle of whiskey. I could cope without the whiskey. I could cope without the spoon. And I could cope without the shower gel. (laughs) Chilli sauce for you. Well, having had a few dehydrated meals lately, I think the chilli sauce would have been... I think I'd have packed it in there and then. (laughs) So thinking about the key attributes to go into our toolbox, what... What kind of struck you from this conversation? Well, there was clearly the love of a challenge, you know, that that came through quite strong, that that both uh, Nick and Hamish, that desire to do something. And I think think there was something a a bit about the desire to be a pioneer, you know? Nick talked about the mountain climbers of the past and the the polar explorers, and I, I think a lot of the world has already been seen. But there are still things that you can do where you're the pioneer. And I don't think Nick put a number on it, but at one point he said, I think, you know, more people have climbed Everest than have rode around Britain. And I, and I think that's, I think the numbers would, I think the number of people who've climbed Everest would dwarf the number of people who've rode around Britain. And so there's still that element of being a pioneer, which is quite exciting. Also, the fear of failure came up quite a lot. And it was something that he just wasn't prepared to, to contemplate. They, they really wanted to, to push themselves and didn't really matter how many knockbacks they had, even from, you know, that his lowest point was in the first 10 days yeah. of a 50-day challenge. It still wasn't enough for them to think that they weren't going to do it. That would have been hard. That, that managing expectations was really interesting. And I think it's probably something we can all take, actually, any time you go into something. There's a saying they have in the army, which I'm sure Nick would, has heard before, which is, uh, no plan survives contact with the enemy. You know, you set off with this great plan and then first three days it's shot because yeah. they've got this horrible winds. That would have been really hard. You know, OK, we're going to do this in however many days and then you've more than doubled your time just doing the first leg. I would just be so worried about the supplies running out. If you've got a kind of set time in your head of how long it's going to take and the first bit that was going to take three to four mm. days takes ten... Mm. That would have been really tough. Must have been a big bottle of chilli sauce. <laughs> you need to get over the chilli sauce. <laughs> I'll tell you what else I really took from this is quite how much Nick attributes this challenge as a defining event in his life. And he credits this to how he got his current job. And it's not any old job. He's a, an anaesthetist. It's, it's a pretty mm. big deal. But he thinks that this was more influential than him publishing more medical articles in medical journals. But it says a lot about someone, doesn't it? It says, I think that, you know, anyone going for one of those jobs has probably written some newsletters and published some articles. And it says a lot about you that you're, uh, you know, you've got determination, you're willing to see a project through. It's not so much the physical side of it, is it? You know, I mean, the, the physical side of it, whilst impressive, you know, neither of these guys needed to be GB rowing athletes to complete the task. It's entirely mental. It's grit and resilience. And the organisation of it. I mean, the, the whole thing is, is really quite impressive. Because I think before I interviewed him, 
I was just thinking it was going to be focused on how he trained for it, how they got the boat together, and then how they did it. All the other factors that came into play that I hadn't even considered were so significant that you can see why potential employers, people like mm. us who, you know, find this sort of thing really interesting, you know, it's it's huge. It's really, really impressive. So speaking of the organisation then, uh, the different term, term of organisation, there was a line early on where Nick said, if you come up with a project in the army and you bring it to your superiors and they think it's plausible and achievable, then they'll support you. So is that one of the sort of key takeaways that putting yourself in an environment where you're surrounded by people who want to achieve, you know, by like-minded people and putting yourself in an environment where your plans are not only supported, but people have that belief in you. I mean, that's super important. Definitely. I think, you know, you can have the best idea in the world, but if you don't have all the other factors behind you and let's not beat around the bush, the, the promotion, the financial support, these are all huge hugely influential on being able to pull something like this off the ground, mm. that it did seem like being part of the army was a massive factor. And I mean, I'm not suggesting everyone needs to go out and join the army. I mean, no, th- thank you. <laughs> but there might be other <laughs> ways of, of putting yourself in that position. Or certainly surrounding yourself with the right type of people. Exactly. You know, if, you have, if you have something you want to achieve, don't surround yourself with people who say, oh, I don't know why you'd want to do that. Or you'll never be able to do that. You know, I don't think people are actually overtly negative, but I think a lot of the time people certainly can be less than supportive. No, you're totally right. And it's also, you know, if you think back to Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, it's not just how much talent or effort you put in. There is such a massive aspect to luck, to timing. And these guys happen to come across each other at a time where this event hadn't happened Mm. yet. And, you know, it did evolve from the, the initial idea, which was rowing the Atlantic. the Atlantic. Which is actually a far more trodden path than rowing around Great Britain. Exactly. Yeah. So it's just, um, you know, all these different elements all came together. And here they are now. So, John, from what you've listened to, what do you think, from Nick's experience, should go into our extraordinary toolbox? So uh, I think that it has to be surrounding yourself by like-minded people who believe in you. That will give you that belief to carry on. You'll have the resilience when you need it. We haven't all got a general to call when we've just capsized in the North Sea. (laughs) But if we can have people like that who say, well, are you okay? Is the boat okay? We'll get on with it then. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, like-minded people who... um, and that does tie into to, to the fear of failure in that when you've got that many people behind you who are supporting your idea, you don't want to let them down. And the fear of failure has no can't grow, can it? It gets snuffled out. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of Extraordinariness. The show is produced and hosted by Joe Spence and myself, John Harmon, with music from Coma Media. You can find more information on Nick and Hamish's journey on our website, extraordinaries.co.uk. If you've enjoyed the episode, please like, subscribe, and tell anyone else you think might enjoy the show.